You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Hello. Hi, and uh, good evening, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Martin Schwartz, and I'm the program curator at the Goethe Pop-Up Seattle. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for being here today, and especially to the partners who are making today happen. That would be the Center for Western European Studies, the Jean Monnet Center for Excellence, the Department of Political Science, uh, all of the University of Washington, and, almost the, and also the Thomas Mann House. I'm not sure whether all of you are aware of the Thomas Mann House, but it is a, it's a center for transatlantic dialogue funded by the government of the Federal Republic of Germany that brings in a succession of uh, junior and senior fellows. Um, Dr. Lanfried is a senior fellow here with us today uh, to, to inspire dialogue on issues of mutual importance among experts and the communities at large. And I, I think that uh, as, as an event explicitly about transatlantic dialogue and the and the events and the and the values that we all share today is a really good uh, exemplification of that work um, a word about the good to pop up um, we are also funded by the German government we are theoretically a, a temporary branch of Germany's good Institute which is the international Cultural Institute of the Federal Republic of Germany, active in over 100 countries. But in Seattle, um, we are located on Trap House Row. We do our very best to bring together the Puget Sound and Germany and indeed Europe and the rest of the world together through arts, through culture, uh, and through scholarly inquiry. We have what I like to think of as a pretty uh, aggressive and ambitious program in the arts, uh, a monthly film series, um, uh, 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 book readings, music, dance, uh, and a regular exhibition program. So please check us out and have a coffee in Chop House Row and get on our email list, goethe.art.de forward slash Seattle. Now, um, all that being said, my, my colleague, our director, Arabelle, would love to be here today. She really was looking forward to this program, but she, um, in the line of duty, caught the dread plague, COVID, and can't be here, but she sends her very best regards. Um, finally, I'll, I'll just... Before I say goodbye, I'll go off script a little bit and say that I, I think we're going to learn a lot about the remaining capacities of Western democracy with the speed with which issues of gun control are addressed uh, as of today. I, I don't feel comfortable saying something in public without, without saying that today. Um, all that being said, thank you, everybody. Thank you to our speakers. And Sabina, please come up. Thank you. Thank you, Martin, and a warm welcome from our side, too. Um, I am Sabine Lang. I'm a professor of international studies and European politics here in the Jackson School. Many of you I've seen before. That's lovely, so welcome here. Um, 
we are, as a center for West European studies, not directly funded by the German government, but we do get some money from the, we, we get some money from them too. So um, very happy uh, about our cooperation with the Goethe Institute and with the Thomas Mann House for many events that kind of work at the intersection of politics and culture in Europe, um, and uh, this is actually what we're going to embark on today, too. So um, we've just heard uh, today was a pivotal, another pivotal day for our thinking about the downfall of democracy in our country here, and I think we all uh, realize that it is about high time to think about new modes of engaging citizens, working with each other, crossing lines that somehow for many seem to be walls now that they can't cross anymore. And so I'm, I'm particularly happy that we're having this talk this evening um, under these circumstances. Um, we all are aware, and many of you have taken classes on this and have studied this, we're aware that democracy is not just on a declining route in terms of our trust in institutions, trust in governments, it's also if we look at the global picture and see that barely one-fifth of countries on this planet still call themselves and can call themselves viable democracy. So um, there's a lot of work to be done, and one of the people who is working on that has kindly agreed to come up from Los Angeles, from the Thomas Mann House, with a very stressful day yesterday and not that much of an improvement this morning, so we just hope we can uh, be the catalysts for a positive evening experience for you. Dr. Landfried, Christina Landfried, um, is a professor emerita of political science from the University of Hamburg. She has studied history, um, international law, and political science at Heidelberg and at Harvard University. Between 2014 and 2016, she was in New York and held the very renowned Max Weber chair at the New York University, and she's been teaching many places at Sciences Po, um, at Berkeley, um, at Yale Law School. Currently, we've just heard she is a fellow at the Thomas Mann House uh, in uh, Los Angeles, where she's working on a project about citizen conferences, bringing citizens together strategically to debate um, issues of relevance and how that could potentially translate into reinvigorating democracy. So we're very excited to have you with us and look forward to your talk. We're also excited to have two respondents with us um, who in each in their own way have their own take on where democracy is, how it's declining, or how it can be resuscitated. So up here to the far right of you is Oh, oh I'm, I'm very sorry about that. I should not have said that, but you all know what I mean. Is Professor Joyce Mushaben. Um, she is an adjunct professor currently in the BMW Center for German and European Studies at Georgetown University, and previously she was the Curator's Distinguished Professor of Comparative Politics at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. Her work focuses on Germany 
uh, and European politics as well with an interest in migration, in gender, in identity questions. Um, Professor Mooshaben is also my first um, visiting scholar in the new chair that we got at the center. I hold a chair from the European Union, not from the Germans. Um, that is uh, dealing with questions of civil society, inclusion, and diversity in the next three years. And so, uh, Professor Mooshaben, if any of you are interested, and some of you will be there tomorrow, is going to talk in Johnson Hall uh, tomorrow at 11.30 on European gender politics. Then we have with us as a second respondent, Professor Mark Smith, who is a professor and associate chair in the political science department here at UW. And his work really focuses on questions of American political identity, so a good counterpart, good counterweight, as well as on rhetoric on conservatism. So I'm pretty sure um, Mark Smith has a lot to say about citizen conferences in their own right. The format, very quickly, we will have about 30 minutes of Professor Landfried talking, then about 10 minutes of respondents each. Then we're going to sit down and be more cozy and hit a Q&A and interaction period with all of you. Finally, um, I don't want to close without giving my profuse thanks to everybody who is sponsoring this event, besides the units we've already mentioned. The political science department is sp sponsoring um, the um, Lee Scheingold Fund. Lee Scheingold is here, is helping us sponsor, sponsor events like this. And thanks also to the Thomas Mannhaus and the Goethe Institute. So with that, I would like to turn it over to Christine Landfried and look forward to your talk. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you uh, so much, Sabine, for this very kind uh, uh, sort of uh, invitation, but also now introduction. Uh, and thanks also uh, to Martin and to the Goethe pop-up for the uh, uh, invitation, also for the Center of West European Studies here at the university. Uh, it's, uh, it's a great pleasure for me and an honor to be here. And uh, I'm also very, uh, very much uh, surprised that there are so many uh, students here, which I think is a very good thing. Uh, so, uh, dear ladies and gentlemen and uh, colleagues and students and all people interested uh, in this talk about renewing democracy. Uh, I wanted uh, to start, because you also mentioned that, uh, with the Thomas Mann House. Uh, Thomas Mann uh, was a writer and here in exile, as you might know, uh, during the Nazi regime. And uh, living in this beautiful former house, there is a small study. And of course, you sit in there and you read his work. And I was surprised how much of his essays are really very timely. And I want to start, um, which is very uh, near to our subject today, that in 1938, uh, he was very sure he would write an article uh, on the coming victory of democracy. So you must imagine, in 1938, democracy was losing in, demo uh, in Germany. It had lost already. And uh, to have the courage to, to say this, one asks, why could he be so sure? Uh, 
Uh, and treating this text, what I thought, um, for example, one citation I wanted to tell, because this also for us resonates very much with Ukraine at the moment, he would write, uh, well, I'm convinced that democracy will win. I'm relating democracy to the inalienable dignity of mankind, which, sorry, which no force, uh, however humiliating, can destroy. So this is courageous to say this in 1938, however humiliating, so they can never win. Uh, and uh, the interesting thing now for political scientists is that he did not say this out of optimism. What he said, well, of course, that democracy will win. There are certain conditions that must be met. Uh, and I think this is the interesting thing for us if we want to discuss how can we renew democracy, uh, what conditions have been lost and what has gone wrong. And my uh, talk here, I want to structure along three questions. The first question will be, what really has gone wrong with democracy? What conditions of democracy did we lose? Uh, the second question will be, how do we explain this, that this has happened, because I think it's, diff it's important also to see a long-term development, not just what's happening now. And the third point would, uh, the third question will be then, what can be done? And here come in then the citizens' assemblies, is this really promising? Uh, and uh, I'm very happy that we have uh, uh, very distinguished discussions afterwards, and uh, I look forward to their criticism and to say absolutely the opposite of what I'm saying. So the first question, well, what has gone wrong with democracies? Uh, as Sabine has already mentioned, it's not just about trust in political elites or uh, losing trust into uh, democratic institutions. Uh, it is much more. I think that citizens are frightened of the future more and more, and this has to do with social cohesion, cohesion which has gone lost. So we have a middle class which is, has not become poor, but which is afraid of becoming perhaps their children becoming poor, uh, but we have really uh, uh, ever larger inequality in societies, between societies, and I think once the social cohesion is getting lost, people are frightened of the future. So this is the econ uh, uh, increasing economic inequality. This also has to do then, societies are becoming polarized. And uh, here we all know with social media that we communicate in our own circles. Uh, and uh, so we don't communicate with other groups so much anymore. But democracy is about communication across lines of difference. And this is getting lost. Who wants to read this new book by Greg Kaloon is a central subject in his book, that this sort of communication across differences is getting lost. There is no communication anymore. What is also getting lost, as we know, there are more and more in representative democracies communication with politicians. So I think here we have the central elements losing trust into in democratic institutions, social cohesion is going down, polarization, 
we have between these different groups. They don't talk to each other anymore. And we have fragmentation of a public sphere. So all these things really bring democracy in a critical situation. I would not say, like some colleagues, democracies are dying. Uh, but I would say uh, they are in a very bad shape. How can we explain this? So it is my thesis that democracies are in such a critical situation because of two reasons. The one reason is that political elites have underestimated the importance to be in a constant exchange with citizens. They have done their job wherever, be it in Washington, be it in Berlin, be it in Paris, in their capitals. But they have not really realized how important it is to know what people are caring about. So I think this is the one reason, because we are in a, in a stress. These are, I would say, they underestimated the relevance of this discourse for what I call the cultural foundations of democracy, which is trust, solidarity social cohesion, these are all sort of uh, cultural foundations to have trust or not trust. The second reason uh, is uh, that these cultural conditions, trust, as you could have seen already from my answer to the first question, they have to do with economic developments and with social development, developments. This is very often not dealt with. We don't have here trust is losing, and here inequality is rising, but there is a connection between these two. And I think this is important also to look at the long-term development. Usually it's always said this has, you know, populists and so on. So this is happening in the last 10, 20 years. But this rise of inequality has happened much earlier in the last century in the 70s when many Western democracies reacted to globalization and they react, reacted by deregulation. And this deregulation made structures which in the end are very difficult to change again. And you know, and politicians realizing this, how difficult this is, they would try not to talk about the problems. And this made the problems even bigger. So I think here we can see the relation. We have first democratic governments who deregulate. It's not coming out of the blue. Uh, there is a new study of the Bergwin Institute in, uh, in Los Angeles, a very interesting study on citizens' participation. But they start that they say, well, we have these objective developments, uh, these challenges, inequality, and so on. This is not outside of politics. This is their formulation. Because these were democratic governments who did sort of initiate that. Uh, and I think this is important uh, then to see that politicians seeing having these structures and politics not being able really anymore to shape economy. How can politics shape Facebook? This is very difficult. And uh, then sort of they downplayed the problems. Uh, they avoided to publicly speak about these vexing problems. And this then had as a result uh, that, you know, there was no exchange anymore, trust was lost, and so on. So this would be my explanations with these two factors, ha having a relation. And the third question now is, well, what can be done? How can we renew this? Uh, and I think two major reforms are necessary. On the one side, which I will not speak about, but I think it's important to always have this in mind, there must be really effective policies 
to reduce this economic inequality. I think this is really decisive. This cannot sort of, there must be national policies, European policies, international policies, also taxing, for example, these pla uh, platforms and so on. And the second reform, I think, uh, I will, uh, would be that we really try to make more lively the exchange between politicians and between citizens anymore, to give citizens a voice that they talk to each other across these lines of differences again, and then also talk with politicians. So I think these are two important points. The citizens talking to each other, coming from different strata, but then also talking to the politicians. So I think this is the second reform, and I will now speak about this. And I have chosen one example, and perhaps the discussions might bring others in, but because I have really been an observer empirically, so I have chosen that. This is a uh, European conference on the future of Europe, just look at the time. Yes, we have enough time. Uh, and this is one of the, what we call, citizens' assemblies. Uh, what are citizens' assemblies? There was, uh, for example, here one in the United States some years ago, uh, done by a group of political scientists uh, from Stanford, America in one room. I don't know if you followed that. It was not so much known. But there, they had, on a weekend in a hotel, brought together uh, people with very different views on political questions, for example, migration. And then they would uh, give them information and they would discuss an informed discussion. And then they would look, well, did they change their mind? Did they, well, perhaps some sort of things which were not really, uh, could not, you could not have reasons for it, would they throw this back? And you could see a change of, uh, uh, of uh, meanings and of, of their opinions. Uh, and I think this is uh, the first start that citizens of different views talk to each other. This was this American one room. And now in the European Union, uh, they have chosen by lot 800 citizens. Uh, of course, if you hear 800 citizens, that's what Joyce already said, and you have 500 million inhabitants uh, in the European Union. Uh, so this is, of course, you know, such a small percentage, you cannot even uh, imagine a 0, 0.0 and so on. But they were representative. It was a sample. It was a representative sample. Of course, it's not really, in the end, totally representative, because if you have a, a pot, and there are all the chosen by lot people in it, and then you choose the 800, and then you have, well, to convince them to participate, and you call them, and uh, sort of, if you are very poor, and you have to earn your money to pay your rent. You are not interested uh, to go for a debate for a whole weekend to debate about Europe. So you are just not interested. So it has a little bit a bias, a social bias, more academic people, people who can afford that. But from the principle, it's chosen by lot, and it's representative of democracy. And the other thing was about, that's perhaps important for you, that a third of all these European citizens' panels had to be young people between 18 and 15, uh, 25. Uh, so this was a real, you also could see that in the debates. And how did they work? 
Well, uh, they uh, were three, they had, uh, first they were chosen uh, making their agenda. They had the big problems of our time. As you can imagine, uh, they had climate change, they had digitalization, uh, they had migration, they had Europe's role, global role in the world, but also European democracy. And uh, I was an observer of this panel, which was a panel two, uh, on uh, European democracy, rule of law, rights. Uh, and uh, there I must say, I was anyhow, my bias is that I was positive about this experiment. But my role as a, as a scientist is, of course, to analyze and to see what is going good and what is going bad. You know, I cannot just say it's all perfect. Uh, but the debates really were informed. There were experts. Uh, they would give introductions in the European Union. Uh, and then uh, citizens could ask all the time about uh, how, what about the European Council? How was this? I don't remember. So it was an informed debate. And there were small groups also uh, together. And actually, I was impressed about the quality of the debate. Uh, the group I was in was not polarized. In so far, it was not representative of, of democracy, uh, of what we have at the moment. It was a group which, you know, they formulated proposals, they found compromises, they had differences. Of course, you must see 27 member states and uh, they have officially uh, 24 languages. And this was all translated simultaneously and so on. But it was uh, an interesting debate. Uh, they made their proposals, and uh, there I would criticize because uh, the voting was really uh, all citizens then of one panel was from 800, four panels were 200 citizens. They would vote about the proposals of all the working groups. And what the working groups had uh, proposed, they did, the others didn't know about a lot. They just had the result. And then on this small information, they would vote which proposals uh, would they be in favor with. So I think one would have to change that in the future before you vote. You must need the other proposals much more. Okay. And then there was the, uh, afterwards, they would di discuss with politicians. Then there was a plenary, and then you had members of the European Parliament, of the national parliaments, and so on. And then in my group, uh, there was uh, Manfred Weber, who is a member of the European Parliament. He was, the, uh, he was uh, chairing this group. And then the politicians would say, oh, we should change this, and we should change that. And there came a moment when uh, citizens said, well, you know, we don't recognize our proposals anymore. This doesn't work. And I think this was also a, a, a communicative competence of uh, the citizens, uh, not being shy and saying, oh, these are the professional politicians. So I think this was quite interesting. Uh, and um, how much time is it left now? I think. Good. Yeah? yeah? Fine. So because I thought we have a small uh, view, uh, you have been so kind uh, to prepare this. It's very difficult. We have this beautiful room, uh, but of course you cannot have all. Uh, the, for the technology, it's not so easy. So it was a big work, so thank you so much. Uh, this was one of the working groups uh, where politicians, also civil society groups, uh, then uh, the group who has worked in this panel too, uh, they sort of, you must imagine first there were 200 
on uh, the European conference on this panel, but then they would, in the working groups, they would choose their ambassadors and they would make a smaller group in the end for the plenary. So not all 800 citizens in the end would discuss with the politicians, but just also chosen by lot, their ambassadors. From each 200, they would take 20. So you could uh, uh, put your name in a box and say, I volunteer, and then it was chosen by lot. So you can see then it's becoming a small group, but now mixed with politicians. And this was actually the real innovation of this citizens' assembly, that it's not just among citizens, but with politicians. And here is a short, if we start this, uh, at the beginning is Manfred Weber. So, he is from the uh, Conservatives. So we can go Welcome. to big Let's four. Start with our so he, make, he makes an usual formal introduction. We can go again four. So until one of the citizens is coming, a little bit more. So here, yes. These are the two points on ah. the table. Uh, if I may say, uh, I would put <coughs> Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for letting us take the floor at the beginning of the meeting. You quite rightly said what I wanted to say. I wanted to emphasize that we are disappointed by the way in which we are working. Other working groups have a different approach. We are here to represent 200 citizens who made recommendations that we don't find sufficiently reflected in the non-paper. The non-document, uh, the non-paper, sorry, is very precious, but when it comes to the recommendations and precise proposals, we would like a specific format. And like in other working groups, we would like these ideas to be reflected in the same way as they are in other working groups. I think that's like enough. We can stop. So uh, that they were following more citizens, very critical also, but you get an impression that they are very open. Uh, it's really, it was a debate uh, on, on the, uh, on uh, how does one say, Augenhöhe? On either, yeah, on, on the same level. Uh, now, at the end, uh, the, the Citizens' Conference has, uh, as a whole, proposed 49 proposals, and uh, the end was on 9th of May, and there was a plenary session in the end, and one can, of course, ask, now you have a paper. If this is all, then this would not be a success. So, if, is it implemented? This is one of the big questions now. How much will become reality, or is it just you put it on a shelf and that's it? Uh, and, uh, of course, this was debated by the citizens also, and I would show a small uh, excerpt again uh, from the last session of the citizens, because one of the citizens, she was the speaker of my group, uh, panel two, uh, Antonia Kieper is her, her name, uh, and uh, she would uh, say, you know, uh, politicians now, you should not only listen to us to give a certain answer. Which, put, which is nice for your perspective. You should listen to us to understand us. 
So I think this is really interesting for somebody who has, I don't think, ever read Habermas or a communication theory to make really this point that, you know, we had this debate and now you really have to stick to that and not just give your answers, uh, but understand us. So here is the next uh, short. Uh, we start also and we go a little bit further. Perhaps if we go here, uh, Okay. Here, here, go here, and then we have the orators list, and then we go down a little bit, down, down still. So here she is, and if we go here, she should come. Yes, that's uh, exactly the passage. it louder okay then we leave it but but uh, but I can just repeat it what she says uh, you know to understand each other has means to communicate with each other and believe us we had a lot of communication and it was a very difficult process and now really politicians don't just choose what fits into your program but be serious make something of it, and not just what I said, your answers, but understand us. So I think there has already been, besides will it be implemented, a success of this conference. The following, some of these proposals can be realized on the basis of the existing European treaties. But there are some proposals which you cannot realize by these treaties, so you would need treaty changes. For example, the citizens propose what is, you know, proposed since years, uh, that in foreign European foreign policy, one should not have a sort of unanimity, but one should have a majority principle. And if you want to realize this proposal, you must change the treaties. Now, European politics, if you look at that, has a certain mechanism. This mechanism is, please don't talk about treaty changes. This is dangerous. Oh, we had bad experience. So we change the treaties, but not in a transparent way, but always when you have a crisis management, Euro crisis, uh, COVID-19 crisis, uh, you make some things and you say, this is an exception. We do now a fiscal union in the European Union, for example. Uh, we take on the capital market common debts and every member state uh, has sort of, uh, is haftbar. Uh, responsible, thank you, Joyce, is responsible for these debts. This was a big taboo of Angela Merkel, of the German government for years. And suddenly they would say, well, we do it now. But you know, it's a fiscal union. We don't want a fiscal union. It's just that. Now with the Ukraine, one says, when this hopefully at some point is ended, uh, we have to rebuild Ukraine. And how do we proceed? Oh, this worked so well uh, with uh, uh, the COVID uh, Next Generation EU program and this fiscal union as an exception. So let's make another exception. So again, we take up on the capital market debts and all we are responsible for that. So you see, this has been the mechanism like Europe works. 
without public opinion, without democratic legitimacy. Uh, and I think now, by the citizens, by the citizens' assembly, this subject is on the table. You can see it from the debates. Now, many uh, member states, 13 say we are against uh, change uh, the treaties, uh, six are in favor. There is a big discussion also in the media. So you see, I think this is the first success, the real success of the citizens' conferences. They put it on the agenda, so they can't hide it under the table anymore. So at least this is something. I would also say with all skepticism with these formats, uh, that, you know, once you have more citizens' voice in politics, of course you don't change what I said, inequality, but you make sort of like it's a lot sort of capacity building. If you have a more democratic, legitimized government, this government also is better able to act when they know we have the people behind. So I think they don't change inequality, but it's a capacity if they, after these debates, have more trust again into a democratic government. So I think this is also something one should never forget, besides that you know you have across differences, you have a communication, but these were 800, and there I would say with 800 citizens, you don't change polarization of society when society in the European Union has 500 millions. So, but I think what is important here, that the conscious is getting bigger. If you have these formats with citizens, consciousness of citizens and of politicians, that something is going wrong. And I would say in so far that these uh, citizens' assemblies are opening up public spaces in which the much-needed dialogue between citizens and politicians can take place, in which people from different cultures and social strata get connected, even if only for a short time, and trust in democratic institutions is regained, not totally, but you know it's a first step. As this is the case, I would say, this is why my resume would be, citizens' assemblies are a crucial step, at least a crucial experiment on the long road how we regain, again, a strong representative democracy. Thank you very much. All right, um, yeah, thanks for the opportunity to engage this, this fascinating project that, that Christine is uh, starting here. Uh, and as I understand it, your um, emeritus status now, um, you have this fellowship, uh, and this is kind of the beginning part of your of your fellowship. Um, so I think a lot of my remarks will be situated um, in in that context. So I'm going to talk first about kind of the um, the, the the parts of the um, kind of the theoretical framework that you that you laid out um, today. Um, I'll then segue to the your particular um, solution, and then speak third about studying deliberative forms of this of this of this kind. Um, so with respect to your, 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 your broader account, um, 
one of the pleasures of being a social scientist or, or a historian or both um, is precisely the ability to like think big picture um, like you're doing here uh, and you know pulling together problems of, of de modern democracy that are you know more intense some places than others um, hint I think you're in one of them but you can still see the the, the patterns um, you know th throughout the democratic world and um, you, you highlighted especially things like um, growing inequality, um, polarization, uh, decline in, in civil society, um, more siloing, um, with more communication moving online, uh, you know, big echo chamber uh, problems, um, people feeling like their, their politicians are, are out of touch, so a, a loss of trust in the political system, um, also kind of connected to the polarization and the echo chambers, loss of trust in fellow citizens, people feeling less invested in a, in a common political project uh, and the person, you know, in their own country now they might see as their, you know, quote, enemy, at least their political enemy, rather than someone in, embarked on a, on a um, you know, a, a journey together to try to create, create something, um, you know, to, to the benefit of all. Um, so I th thought you did a, a really outstanding job of laying out those, um, those problems. Um, you mentioned also, um, you know, deregulation, uh, you know, then contributing to, uh, to to inequality. So we have like a, a really big picture, a constellation of of problems. Many of them um, interconnected, um, which which I think you you, you lay out um, quite quite persuasively. Um, and then, because you're a big picture intellectual, you want to you want to think, all right, what what can I contribute here toward? a pathway to, to, to solving some of these problems, and then that led you in turn to, uh, to, to deliberative um, democracy as a, uh, as a means of getting there. Um, and so now I'll come in as sort of the, the critic, and uh, it's a common you know, ob objection to projects of this sort where the, uh, the solution is not scaled to the, to the, to the problem. And so, um, you know, I mean, you're, you're trying not to bite off more than you can chew in terms of like what solutions could, could you study. But I, I noticed you didn't propose, you know, various kinds of, of systemic, um, you know, changes. Um, I think it was kind of implied that maybe reversing some of the deregulation could possibly help on the, the uh, uh, inequality side. I mean, you didn't push that argument, but it, it's, it's, it's maybe at least um, consistent with your, with your account. But then we do get to the to your your particular solution, which is the, the citizens' assemblies, a, a version of deliberative democracy. Uh, and there, um, um, the point I'm making here is not it's not not really a, a new problem. But there's been a lot of excitement around this for probably the last 25 years. There's been a big area of study um, in the in the whole realm of of uh, deliberative democracy. And one of the common uh, problems it's encountered is is a scaling. Uh, problem, um, and you pointed this out, frankly. So, if we have a, a, a citizens' assembly that's 800 people out of out of 500, you know, million in the, in the European Union, well, this may well have powerful effects on those 800. But if if we can't link it to the rest of the 499 million, uh, 999,200, um, then it benefits those 800. What does it do for the for the for the larger um, system? And, and, and people working in deliberate democracy have, have tried to account for that, for that problem. Um, it's, it's not an easy one. It costs a ton of, the one you put on, I don't know how much money it took to, to do that. But if you were to try to do that, like, well, let's get all 500 million in, in one of those, um, you, you quickly overwhelm the potential c capacity. So you have to find a means of taking what, 
what, what they have done, what they benefited from, and then translating that for the larger uh, population. And of course, doing this in an era of social media, divided attention. Um, you know, I'm just thinking like watching those, those forums, if you throw this in front of the ordinary person, how long before they change the channel? Um, my suspicion is not, not long. Now, um, one, one possible solution to this, um, and here I'm gonna to start to draw from some work from my uh, friend and former colleague, John, John Gastel, on um, finding a way to publicize the results of these, of these deliberations. So I'm not, not sure if you're familiar with, um, in Oregon they have this, um, a, a, a situation like that where people deliberate on uh, initiatives and referenda, and then they, they take the results of those and they put them on the, the voters' pamphlet. So I don't know if you've lived in any Western states before. Well, if you're in California now, you've probably seen the voters' uh, pamphlet that um, will, will give like descriptions of the candidates running for various offices, the initiatives and referenda. And then uh, in Oregon, and it's been done, it's been proposed in a few other states. I think Colorado has it now. Uh, it's been at least proposed in Massachusetts, a, a couple others, I'm not sure where it stands. But in any case, the results of those deliberations are, are publicized in the, the, the voters' pamphlet. So it's a way to like not just benefit the people who are there deliberating, but to, to do it more, more broadly. Uh, in principle, you could do that with, with candidate elections as well. Um, as you might suspect, that's been seen as more threatening to the people in office, and so they were willing to approve this for initiatives and referenda. They have been willing to approve it for, for, for uh, you know, candidate elections, but there's no reason why you couldn't. Uh, and then we have like candidates' message, parties' messages, and like an independent voice of people who deliberated on the candidates, and you could put, publicize that as well through the, through the voters' pamphlet. Uh, as I say, my, my friend and, and former colleague John Gossel has, has studied this and you know, shown em, em, empirically that um, people do read the voters' pamphlet. You might be surprised, but um, especially on some of these lower profile matters where they haven't thought about it, if they want to decide on an initiative, they actually will, will use the voters' pamphlet and they will often cite these um, statements as being useful to them. And then you can do some various sorts of, you know, attempt to like suss out causation and so on to try to figure out did it make a difference in, in how they voted and in a lot of cases it, it did where they responded to the, the arguments contained, um, contained therein. So I guess that, that's where I would push you to, to think is uh, linking your solution sort of to the problem that you're trying to address um, and then, um, and then trying to uh, work work through that through, through that problem. How, how am I in terms of time, Sabina? Um, three more minutes. Three more minutes. Okay. Um, so then, this this um, I think I can do this in three minutes. So then, my my next um, uh, this is going to be kind of just a I guess a piece of a piece of advice from someone who's been around around the academic world a while, not quite as long as you have, but um, long enough to sort of see people's trajectories and careers and and, and so on. Um, and I take it for you, this is almost like a, almost like a second uh, career. You're, you know, you're emerita now. Um, the, the area you're working in doesn't seem to connect up real thoroughly with your, with your previous um, work. So in some ways, this is kind of the, the joy of any academic um, career, and maybe even more so once someone is, is uh, emerita status. Uh, and that you can take on, you can take on something new. Uh, I'm a big supporter in that, of moving across disciplines, across um, areas of, of study. Um, these things can get kind of sclerotic um, 
uh, over time where you've had the same people working on him and maybe they need an infusion of, of, of new ideas. Uh, and possibly, based upon your background, that's precisely what you can bring as someone who hasn't worked in this area, has worked in, in other areas, you know, international law, and, and, and maybe you can draw some principles from there and import them in to this area of study. Um, so far, I'm not really seeing that in your work, but maybe that's because you're, um, you're kind of new, new to it. But um, the, the thing I would push you on is thinking of, there are all these people who've been working in this area, you know, um, that, uh, you know, you, you, I just saw you cited in that, the paper we circulated, um, so I saw you cited James Fishkin, you know, you could cite my friend John Gastel, Jane Manbridge, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of people. And it's a big area of literature now where just like to dig into it is, you know, probably a three months work to like read a lot of the relevant um, research. But what I would want is what's going to be your angle that's kind of different than what is already there. I mean, I have no doubt there's new things to be said. It's just I'm not really kind of picking it up yet. Like what's, what's going to be your distinctive contrib contribution based upon your background? And like what can you bring that's new and different from what the people that are already there um, have done. So I'll go ahead and pause here um, and, uh, and turn it over to, to Joyce. I also want to thank my dear friend and colleague Sabina for this wonderful invitation. Goethe Institute, I've been a fan and a participant. In fact, the people's place I'm staying with in Berlin are retired Goethe people. So. I owe you a lot, let me just put it that way. We've, from Professor Lanfried, we kind of got this big picture of sort of these currents that are out there moving many of our countries into an, what to me is an undesirable direction. And then Mark sort of brought it back to the political realities. And I would like to turn to the human psychology dimensions of it. And for that, I'm going to start with some personal experiences. I've seen a lot of change in my life. I'm the kind of person who will speak to younger scholars, particularly gender scholars, and say, yes, but the glass is now half full. And you're all out there saying, yeah, but it's still half empty. I applied to Georgetown as an undergraduate, and they were not accepting women in the School of Foreign Service. Now I'm teaching there. I spent six years of my life in the nuclear freeze movement. And by the time I left Germany, there was the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty of 1987 that removed all of the intermediate nuclear weapons from German soil and from a lot of the other European countries. Trump and Putin both decided to pull out of that treaty. So there goes another element of my life's work down the drain. I taught at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, which is three miles down the road from Ferguson. You've heard of Ferguson, Michael Brown? I had many students from there. I have many students of color who come from very disadvantaged backgrounds. And yet I hear everybody today talking about structural racism. We didn't talk about it. We lived it. We were confronted every day with the negative aspects of poor quality education in particularly segregated school districts in the state of Missouri. And I saw that Black Lives Matter movement sort of percolating up, and I thought maybe finally something here is going to happen. And then the Black Lives Matter movement in St. Louis called for an election boycott. 
instead of sending six people in to run for the damn Ferguson City Council to try to change all those things that had led up to the shooting of Michael Brown and the disproportionate acts of violence perpetrated against members of the black community in the city of St. Louis. And I was invited by a student of mine who was a Pentecostal, a black Pentecostal minister, to come speak at his church about structural racism. What's wrong with this picture? White girl being asked to black Pentecostalist church to talk about racism. And when I mentioned the fact that the Black Lives Matter group had called for an election boycott, their grandmothers fell off their chairs because they had all remembered way too well the struggles to secure the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and for younger people now to not want to participate in the normal mechanisms of democracy. And I have a 30-year-old son, so I'm also a mom, and I get a sense, I know there are great generational differences between us, but this idea that democracy is an app, I just click on it, and somebody delivers my Jimmy John sandwiches, and somebody gives me everything I want out of a democratic or one-time electoral shot is a problem for me, not only as a mom, but certainly as somebody who is engaged in many of these kinds of struggles. So I want to speak a little bit now to the kind of cultural prerequisites that Professor Lundfried had mentioned at the very beginning. And I want to pinpoint some differences between the United States and Europe as we know it. First of all, we are coming from very different places in terms of our political culture, and that means we're going to have to wind up or take very different roads to reestablish trust and faith in our democratic institutions. For starters, Europeans, for the most part, have national health insurance. They get guaranteed state pensions. They've got subsidized child care. They now have maternity and paternity leave a sort of guaranteed 36 months total up to the eighth birthday of your child in a country like Germany. So when you hear the state, you don't think the state is something evil. You think the state can work for me. The state is giving me things. The state helped us to recover after World War II. And the historical motto of the United States has always been that government is best which governs least or preferably not at all. So that's one big cultural difference. We have no trust in government and the state as part of our founding narrative. The second point I would raise is that we are a winner-take-all society. We have two parties, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, right? And most of us, especially women of my generation, have gone to the polls holding our nose every time just trying to elect the lesser of the two evils. European governments are all based on multi-party systems with proportional representation, and a lot of their governments are coalitions. Coalitions force you to compromise. Compromise has become a dirty word in the United States. Winner take all, single member district, distortions in the electoral college. So that's gonna make it tougher for us to try to reestablish trust and faith in our democratic institutions. And the third point that I don't think we reflect on enough, Europeans trust their experts. 
We, you know, over there, professors are being called upon all the time to comment on certain issues. And here we have journalists talking to each other. We just have a bunch of talking heads and bloggers and people like that. We don't even accept the rulings of the CDC anymore. I mean, people who have medical degrees, who've been working in labs, Fauci's been around for, my God, 50 years just working in the science field. He's a neighbor of mine, more or less. Okay, so I feel pretty good about that, but so is Brett Kavanaugh, I have to confess, also lives in Chevy Chase. All right, so we don't really trust experts. And because we don't trust government and we don't want government to work, we elect local yokels. We elect, we have spent the last 10 years voting for people whose claim to fame is, I've never run for anything before. I've never held political office. As a result, they get there, they don't know how the institutions work, and therefore they have no respect for these institutions. All right, now, there are some things, I think, that we could use to try to restore trust, but keep in mind, it is much easier to destroy trust than it is to create it in the first place and then to restore it. And I think where we go really wrong is looking for a solution from the top down. We have to go back to our local communities. We have to get people engaged in long-term processes. Black Lives Matter kids, run for city council. Get out there and make sure that everybody in your neighborhood is registered to vote. Less than 26% of our population participates in local elections. If you can't change the world, at the level of your own neighborhood, how in the hell do you expect to change the rest of the world? Or move Putin, or Erdogan, or Orban, or any of the other crazies who are out there to change what they are doing so that you feel more safe and more secure in your world. Well, Robert Putnam wasn't the first to talk about social capital. Alexis de Tocqueville had already talked about that in the context of the United States. You need social capital because social capital, A, helps to build trust when you get to know each other as real people. And secondly, it creates a sense of reciprocity. Okay, we all want to fix that pothole over there. We all want to have a crosswalk in front of our public school over here. And if you go back to the local level and you get people engaged in a single issue for a long time, then eventually they do start talking to each other and they forget about a lot of those other differences that are out there. And they must engage with the local institutions. And I don't mean parents going to a school board and screaming their heads off because they don't like the textbooks or they don't want their kids wearing masks. I think of the Bürgerinitiative and the citizens' initiatives in Germany that were protesting nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, things along these lines. And the Greens, as we now know them, started as just these little groups in the neighborhood, and they got themselves elected to the city council, and then they decided eventually in the early 80s to form a party, and then they got elected to the county council, and then they got elected to the state government, and now we have Greens in the government for the second time, and they're proposal, their coalition agreement, is something that, I mean, the rest of us would just die for. Well, not die for, but because people in this country don't want to die for very much of anything anymore. But we look at what's in that coalition agreement, and I say, if we could just get that, wow, we'd have heaven on earth. But it took 40 years 
for them to get to the point where now they can really start shifting those levers of power at the top and changing the bigger picture. Secondly, in addition to working together locally and working for a long time, we have to get people to start dealing with facts. Social media, I don't do any of that garbage. I really don't. Because in the old days, when people read real newspapers, I went to journalism, to a summer journal journalism workshop because I was a co-editor of our school paper. We learned that the first two paragraphs of any article in a newspaper had to address who, what, when, where, how, and then maybe why. But at least the who, what, when, where, how. So it didn't matter if you were reading a conservative newspaper or a liberal newspaper, we all started with the same facts. And then came the editorial and the opinion pieces, and they interpreted those facts differently. My parents have never heard of, they don't listen to anything that I listen to, NPR, BBC, Deutschlandfunk. The only thing they listen to is Fox News. And so we don't have even that factual basis, which is why some of these sort of instructional things that go on in these larger form are very important. Let's get everybody just on the same page regarding the facts. All right, now I would also argue, I know I'm running out of time, I am very skeptical about these things because they're very symbolic. And as uh, Professor Lundfried pointed out and Mark pointed out, you get really excited and you go home and you feel, you know, cozy and wow, we're changing the world. Well, some of us have been to so many demonstrations where you had that feeling, but that's not what's gonna change it. And I'm afraid that with all these people getting involved in these very complicated processes for a period of six months, it's raising expectations that cannot be fulfilled, all right? You all feel really good and you think you should be listened to and you think you should be able to change the world. And then we get back to the political realities of 27 countries, people speaking 24 different languages. The EU is actually a miracle case of countries that had been at war with each other for 400 years, nonstop. It was rape, pillage, slaughter, pause, rape, pillage, slaughter, pause, rape, pillage, slaughter. And these countries got together and they finally said, well, first we're gonna start with coal and steel. And they worked on that for a couple years. They said, well, see, we can talk about coal and steel, so let's talk about agriculture. And then they moved over to that one. You see how trust gets built over time. Now up to 27 countries, 27 different political cultures, and the EU talks. They talk, and they talk, and they talk. And eventually, after 10 years, you get a directive, or you get a regulation. But by then, everybody has bought in to the potential solution, implementing it, very different thing. We're back to the political realities. But you just have to talk for a long time. So I will leave you at least with a somewhat more optimistic comment. It's a, my personal motto is one that I ripped off for my son who used it for his eighth grade graduation. It comes from the great Wayne Gretzky. You miss 100% of the shots you never take. So if this gives us a shot, I'm drinking to it. Thank you. <laughs>